0: world that desperately needs him and we know more and more as we hear more and more of it that the god um that that god uh, we really the lord the world really needs uh the lord and i was just looking at facebook the other day and facebook has a lot of things that are perhaps kind of ancillary and not really that important but i, I was seeing an article about the number of I believe, Iraqis who were coming to Christ and they were saying that that, that there was actually a revival. And people that uh, were were Muslims were were having visions and dreams and that thousands of people were coming to Jesus and they were actually describing it as a revival. And and that's really, I mean, that's so exciting because, uh, you know, you look at the news about the Middle East and it just sounds like, you know, Iraq especially Sounds like things are just going from bad to worse from a political standpoint, from a military standpoint. But we, we hear, uh, you don't hear in the news the fact that God is actually doing a revival. And that's really for us, um, just thinking about that, um, that's exciting to know that God is working in ways that... Um, that the world doesn't recognize, but we can rejoice and thank God and worship God uh, for what he is doing around the world and continue to pray for the people in Iraq, continue to pray that, uh, particularly for those of the the Islamic faith, that they will be coming more and more uh, to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Uh, As we think about mission here in our community, uh, we're committed to these four commitments, these four promises that we're making to God that, that we wanna see that everyone here uh, in living hope and now this is not just for the you know the the, the ones that are like you know we just want to do a lot of stuff. This is for everybody in living hope. From young to old, we want to say everyone in Living Hope is committed prayer that we're really going to bring before the Lord those who God has brought into our lives who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we know that this is where it begins. We can't, even with all the training and all the the experience we have, we just need to come before the Lord and pray and pray, and maybe even that is just going to already bring people in our lives to Jesus Christ. That's how powerful prayer is. So we want to commit to that. Secondly, we want everyone in Living Hope to be trained that that we're properly equipped, we're ready to speak the truth in love, able to share the gospel like it's second nature to us. Uh, We also want to be actively inviting friends and acquaintances to come and join us in worship there's still more cards on the table in the back please go ahead and pick up another card say i'm going to be accountable invite my friends to come and see what god is doing here at living hope and finally we want everyone to walk, actually share the gospel with others, that this is a blessing. it may be the most frightening thing for us, uh, but it will be the most wonderful thing. It'll be the one thing that you remember this year that I had the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody with one of my friends, with my relatives or the coworker or even somebody that I don't know that well, that again, like I said last week, there will be if, if we follow through on this commitment, then there will be 100, over a hundred people this year that will have heard the gospel you know that may have never heard the gospel before so that's something that's really exciting and I'm looking forward to it. I really believe that, 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 that God's going to do this for us together as a church. Now today we're continuing in our series on the topic of Jesus loves looking at the book of Luke and we're looking at different people whom Jesus loved during his ministry on earth and we saw that last week well, we saw that Jesus loves the outcasts we started with that and we saw that, that God seeks those whom the world has rejected those who live kind of on the outside on the fringes that God actually goes and seeks them we also saw that that God loves the sinner that all of us were sinners that we're saved by the immeasurable grace of God and that this truth that God loves the sinner should change us completely in terms of how we Uh, Look at others, how we treat others, how we speak to others, how we care for others, that we really want to follow uh, Jesus in this particular area. And today, we're going to look at a third person that Jesus loved, and that is the intellectual. Now, I know this sounds kind of weird. Jesus loves the intellectual, but this means Jesus loves the thinker. See, Christianity, I believe, is a thinking person's faith. Why? Because even though Christianity is deeply profound and spiritual, at the same time, Christianity is based on a singular, objective, written source. And that's the scriptures, the Bible. Christianity is not grounded in mystical experiences. Christianity is not grounded in like progressive additions and modifications or the writings or the, the thoughts of a singular person. It's based on the faithful, accurate, historical, verifiable source material of the Bible, the scriptures. Anyone who says that the Bible is unreliable or is filled with contradictions and inaccuracies Uh, Most likely, they have not really read the Bible uh, personally, or at least not read through it. And secondly, they're probably not aware that the Bible has actually withstood several decades of fruitless scholarly attacks upon its veracity. And yet the scripture still stands. And so today we want to address this idea that that Jesus loves the intellectual. Jesus loves the thinkers. That Christianity is not just for those who are experiential and emotionally driven. It's, It's for those also who think very deeply about what they believe. That they don't act until they're thoroughly convinced of the truth and reliability of certain propositions. And so Christianity does require faith, but it's not a blind faith. The second thing we're also going to see with this is that the truth of Scripture must not stay in the realm of the intellect, but the Bible says that it has to also cut to the heart that that anyone jesus says anyone who hears my words but does not put them into practice does not live it out um that will not be able to stand up against the storms of life and so jesus challenges us to do more than just believe to agree and to understand but he also calls us to act To put the things that we believe into practice. And so today we're going to be looking at a very familiar parable. uh, But we're going to look at it in terms of the context or why Jesus spoke this parable. And that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10 verse 25. Luke chapter 10 verse 25. And let's go ahead and stand in reverence for the word of God. In reading in verse 25, it says, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and he saw him and passed on the other side. And so likewise did a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion." And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Then Jesus said, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer replied, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. See, from this passage, we're going to see the fact that Jesus, in fact, loves the intellectual. Jesus reaches out to the thinkers. We're also going to see that Jesus challenges us. He's constantly challenging us to move spiritual truth uh, from the realm of thought into the realm of action. That Jesus challenges us to live out what we believe in to bring the truths of Scripture into our day-to-day lives. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan is actually unique to Luke. And it's kind of interesting, I have to mention this, that the phrase good Samaritan kind of rolls off our tongue naturally. Samaritan. We say whenever we think of Samaritan, we think of good Samaritan. In fact, we don't even have to say good. We just say Samaritan. And everybody thinks, oh, that's a person that goes out of his way to help someone. Now, back in Jesus' time, the word good would never be associated with the word Samaritan. It would be like It would be like telling a children's story saying, children, we're going to hear a story about the good Nazi. We'd be like, what? Or the loving Klansman. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's how shocking this would be. Because the cultural associations with the word Samaritan, they thought of like the worst, most corrupt, most reprobate person in society at the time. And so that's what was thinking whenever you hear the word Samaritan for them, that's what they were thinking at the time that Jesus was telling this parable. And so during this pas- in this passage, there's a question from the crowd. There's a one-on-one discussion about spiritual truth. In verse 25, it says, Behold, a lawyer came to him, to Jesus, and to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Luke says that this person is a lawyer, but a more literal translation would be an expert in the scriptures okay this is not like a lawyer like a one who does you know uh, go to court in 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 litigation and things like that this is a, a lawyer in scriptures like he knows everything about scriptures his expertise lies in the details the minutia of jewish religion he was a deep thinker his knowledge of the bible and scriptures is unsurpassed from anybody during that time and the question that he's asking is not oh jesus how am I going to get to heaven he is actually um, asking a question that comes out of a debate in regards to uh, the laws and the rules at that time what must I do to inherit eternal life even among the religious elite there was no easy answer to this question. There were so many the, the, among the experts in the Jewish religion there were numerous opinions there were discussions and debates about which laws because there were so many laws in the Jewish tradition there were tens of thousands of commands and every group was saying follow these and you'll go to heaven. Another group would say follow these and we'll go to heaven. Another group says follow these laws and you go to heaven. And of course each of these groups had studies and and, 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 and defended their position out of scripture and so this group Great debate among all of these scholars. How do you get to heaven? And, and so this expert in the law is not necessarily trying to find out how he's going to get to heaven. He's trying to draw Jesus into this debate and see what Jesus take Whose side Jesus is going to be on in this debate about which laws do we follow? So Jesus, being an intellectual himself and very good at discussion <laughs> and debate, he puts the question back to the lawyer. And he says, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he's saying, okay, what's your position? And the expert in the law is kind of showing his competence, and he effortlessly quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is known as the greatest commandment. And actually, this is kind of like um, the safe answer because this law covers all the laws. And so the expert in the law, he's taking the safe route. He's not taking a stand, and he's saying, well, Jesus, I think that uh, you have to obey all the laws in order to get to heaven, so I was wondering, you know, if at this point the lawyer is kind of prepared for Jesus to engage in a debate and for Jesus to say, Well, I disagree with you, I think it's these laws, and et cetera, et cetera. So the lawyer is feeling confident saying, I think I'm gonna win this argument because you know I know how to do this, and this young rabbi, he's no match for me. But Jesus' response was unanticipated. Because instead of arguing or 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 setting like a, a, a taking an opposite stance or debatable stance jesus actually says you know what you're correct and the lawyer says well what do you mean i am you agree with me and jesus says yes you are 100 percent correct what you have said is exactly right so now just go ahead and go do it so you know what jesus is doing here so it's interesting, there's three important truths that we're going to find out as this lawyer now, as this lawyer continues to try to debate with the master debater. Um, first of all, we're going to see what is the requirement of salvation. We're going to come to that conclusion. What is Jesus saying is actually the res- requirement of, conc- of salvation? The second thing we're going to see is the natural response to uncomfortable truth. How do we normally respond? How do people normally respond when we're convicted or when we're presented with something that kind of makes us feel uneasy? And finally, the last thing is the most important element of godliness. What's the bottom line? Now, again, these things don't seem to be related, but as we go through this passage, we'll see how these things are related and why they connect to this story of the Good Samaritan. So the first thing we look at is what is the true requirement of salvation. See, what Jesus says to the law, he says you've answered correctly. Do this and live. Jesus is saying if you want to earn your way because the 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 um, the lawyer's question was what must I do to get to 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 have eternal life. So Jesus okay, if you want to earn your way, if you want to do stuff to get to heaven, here's what you need to do. Um you basically need to be perfect, right? Because he said, all the laws, and Jesus said, you're right, you have to obey all the laws. Jesus said, basically, if you want to be good enough to get to heaven, then at the end of your life, you need to be able to confidently stand before God and say, God, for every moment of my, of my life, since from birth to, to the, all of the 80 years or 90 years of my time on earth, God, I have never done anything wrong. I've never lied. I've never disobeyed my parents. I've never said anything hurtful. I've never been angry at anyone. I've been completely perfect in every way that I've treated my neighbors, loved them perfectly, loved God perfectly. And and, and Jesus says, okay, if you want to go to heaven according to works, according to deeds, earn your way, then Jesus says, that's the way to get to heaven. Now, I want to highlight that because in the thousands of years since this original conversation happened between Jesus and the, the lawyer, um, the requirement to heaven actually hasn't changed. Uh, you may be wondering yourself here, you may be here saying, well, I, I wonder if I'm good enough to get to heaven. Um, you know, am I a good person? Is it enough to be a good person? Does, uh, is it, uh, do I need to just believe in God? Do I need to, to go to church to, to be religious? You know, what's enough to get to heaven? And usually we're thinking in terms of, like, minimum, like the minimum requirement. You know, it's like, I, you know, it's okay if we exceed the requirement, but I definitely want to know what's the minimum requirement so I can pass that, get to heaven, and just make sure future-wise everything's fine. And Jesus says, okay, well, let me tell you the minimum requirement, you know, the passing grade, uh, the D+, plus, you know that's required to get a passing grade uh, to get to heaven. He says it's um, it's absolute moral perfection for every moment of your life on earth. And we're like, oh my goodness, um, that would be a horrible university to go to. <laughs> but basically, this requirement means that no one, since the beginning of time, there's no one who meets the requirement from an ethical standpoint of going to heaven. In fact, the Bible says very clearly, says, everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. It doesn't say everyone who has sinned to such a degree or everyone has sinned to such comparison. to others. It just says, for all have sinned. We all sin. I mean, that's true. And so basically, every single one of us here falls short of that minimum requirement of getting to heaven. But the good news is that God doesn't demand us to meet this moral requirement in order to have salvation. God does not require us to meet this standard or to pay the price, why? Because Jesus, the son of God, he already met that requirement. Jesus lived that sinless life on earth. He was the only one who lived a sinless life on earth. And Jesus paid the price, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, rose from the dead to show that this gift is 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 available to every single one of us. And the Bible says anyone who believes in him shall not perish but shall be saved. And this is the gospel. So if you've never um, accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, we just want you to know that this is what God requires. This is all that God requires for us to go to heaven. is that uh, we believe and admit that I'm a sinner, that I need God. We believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he's the son of God, he died on the cross for my sin, he rose from the dead, that we choose to follow him by faith and obedience. Very, very simple. Has nothing to do with our moral capacity. It has nothing to do with making up our path for our past. It has nothing to do with being more religious than everyone else. It simply has to do with humbling ourselves, coming before God, receiving the gift that he's given to us and we see that this really is uh, the requirement the only requirement uh, for salvation and so we've looked at this we've seen the requirement for salvation the second thing we want to look at is the natural response to uncomfortable truth now um this is the thing is what the lawyer when he you know, when he did this, he thought, oh, I, I got this. And then when Jesus gave his answer, the Lord was like, oh, my gosh, I just walked right into this one. Because there's no way that I can reasonably argue that I'm perfect. Because people know me around here. They knew who I am. They know what I've done. They've probably seen what I've done. So I can't stand before Jesus and say, I'm perfect. And so at this point, what he should have done is he should have admitted defeat and just say, Jesus, you got me there. uh There's no way I can be perfect. There's no way I can live out this greatest commandment in my life. And uh, please forgive me. And actually, that would have been great. He would have been saved and everything would have been great. But the lawyer is not willing. This expert in the law, he's not willing to admit defeat. Because here we see this natural response, human response to uncomfortable truth. In verse 29, it says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, now, this word justify is very important. This word justify means, in simplest terms, means to kind of use arguments and ideas to excuse ourselves from things that we know that uh, we should do. Um, You know, like when we uh, say, uh, you know, ask our child, did you do your homework? And our child will say, well, um, no, but I would have done it. But you know, I was thinking about doing it, and I really had the intention of doing it. But there was this really good show on TV, and it just happened to be at this time, and the TV just happened to be on. And um, so, you know, you you can't blame me for not doing my homework. You know, things like that. Um, that's like justifying, right? Because it's like giving an excuse or an argument to say why I didn't do what I you know should have. Now I guess as parents we don't take that but as adults we come up with clever arguments to kind of excuse ourselves from responsibility, especially when when, when we're confronted with something unpleasant, something difficult, we find a loophole, we find a technicality. This expert in the law, he was not an expert in practicing morality, but he was an expert in discussing it and debating it, and that's why he focused on this question, who is my neighbor, because he knew, saying, you know, if I can get Jesus to admit that there are actually some exceptions, to loving my neighbor, that there are some people that are not my neighbor, then I can kind of excuse myself for not fully obeying everything God's command and still come out okay, like I'm a good person and I, I deserve this. And so he picks a Samaritan. Why? Jesus picks a Samaritan. Why? Uh, because a Samaritan is, is not considered a neighbor. <laughs> A Samaritan is kind of an, an extreme case. And, and so this idea of a Samaritan uh, kind of says, well, if a Samaritan can do this, what about you? You have no excuse. See, here's the thing is, from our own human nature, we don't like to be um, pushed out of our comfort zone, the things that we're comfortable with. I mean, we, we like challenges. We like someone to challenge us, but we don't like challenges that are convicting we don't like challenges that reveal or expose a deficiency in our life. We don't like challenges that, that show a problem in our life that we need to address. And, and, and so we too will point to uh, extreme cases or, 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 or situations where, where we find a reason why we don't have to do what God wants us to do. In an article entitled, How Can people do bad things and still live with themselves, an author describes something that's called moral disengagement. Now, this is familiar in kind of psychological realms. Basically, it's um, another way of describing sin. (laughs) Basically, that's all it is. What is moral disengagement? Moral disengagement is cognitive maneuvers used to justify self-interest choices that violate our personal moral code, meaning... We know we're doing something wrong. We know this is wrong. We know that, 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 that doing this is stealing or lying, but you know, I really want this. I really want this money. I really want this position or whatever. So I'm willing to violate my own personal code for my self-interest, and I'm gonna find some way in my mind to say that it's okay, that it's not wrong. For example, we may say things like, well, it wasn't like anyone was harmed didn't affect anybody or we may say we even use different words we say well I was really borrowing it I was gonna put it back eventually or we say well you know people do this all the time you know I was cheating but you know some people actually steal the whole exam and they they they, they cheat and get full I'm just looking at one answer or they may say well uh, we may say well my boss told me to do it I mean he didn't really tell me, but I could tell he wanted me to do it, so you know I had to do it. See, these are more than just excuses. Uh, what moral disengagement is, these are beliefs that we actually begin to convince ourselves that these things are true so that we don't have to do the right thing. And moral disengagement can occur in small transgressions, like you know, we pocket some extra change, you know, say, oh well, you know, it doesn't really matter, it's just uh, some change and that person they don't really need it or whatever. Or it can really go to something extreme as you know, major corporate scandals. When these guys get caught and they're brought into court and they say, Well, I did it because of this, this, and you're like, How in the world can they believe that they were not doing something wrong. But they had this moral disengagement. They had told themselves so many times that this is okay, that they actually believe it. Uh, People change the vocabulary. Instead of pirating music and breaking licenses, instead of saying they're stealing, they say, well, we're file sharing, you know. When, when we're distorting sales numbers for the employees and things like that, we say, "Well, instead of lying, what we're we doing, we're doing creative financing." That doesn't sound so bad. And for those of you who've Star Trek, and we say, "Well, instead of profanity and things like that," Spock says, "Oh no, we're using colorful metaphors, you know, <laughs> things like that." And so sin finds this way of excusing ourselves from doing the things that we know we should do, when God convicts our hearts, when God says, hey, this is what what you're doing is wrong, and we're like, I don't like that, because I like doing this, I want to do this. Or if God says, you know, I need you to do this, this is the right thing to do, and we're like, I don't want to do that, God. I really don't want to do that. Then, then sometimes we come up with this moral disengagement. We come up with these, these ideas or thoughts that, that help us to live with ourselves before God and yet still disobey Him and, and some of those things are like what we call the false good. And uh, again, the, the psychological realm has got all these different, like 10 different ways of describing these things. But I, I kind of put it into, you know, just identify some of them and talk about what it really means. Like, for example, false good. This would be like us con- convincing, convincing ourselves, well, it was for the greater good. Well, it turned out good in the end. You know, I, I, I was really mad at them and I, I said a lot of bad words, but look at what happened. It was good. I mean, they ended up doing the right thing, so it must be okay, you know. Um, uh, It was pride for the best. You know, I stole the money, but look, you know, God, let me give it to somebody else and bless them. No, that's not right. It doesn't matter. Maybe God is gracious to not let our consequences of our sin come upon our lives, but that does not mean that it was a good thing or was a right thing to do oh i didn't do it a good thing i didn't do it because look what happened good thing i didn't do the right thing no when god says this is the right thing to do we do it even if things turn out bad you're say, oh no you know i shouldn't have the next time i'm not going to do this because i learned about, no it's not false good we need to know if this is what God is calling us to do, we do it. If this is what God is saying we shouldn't do, we don't do it. Uh, don't let these, you know, this detachment uh, mess up our minds. Secondly, blame and comparison. This is the idea, you know, I really had no choice. Then nothing I could do. Well, it's that person's fault if they weren't such a jerk, then I wouldn't have to do this. Or if they weren't so incompetent, I wouldn't have had to lie about lie and cover for them and things like that. You know, and and so we blame other people and say, you know, eh, I know it was bad. I know I shouldn't have done it, but you know, it's their fault. Oh, you know, the kids want it. That's why I want to buy it. <laughs> that's a big, you know, that that's a big one, right? I know my kids want this, and you know, it's like, what are they gonna do with you know? T- 10 high power speakers and all this kind of stuff. It's like, oh or you know, a, a supercomputer for games, you know, and our child is like, you know, ten years old, five years old, like, oh no, I need to get a supercomputer for games because someday, you know, it's like, no, it's, it's not for the kids, it's for you. Don't blame your kids, you know, things like that. So this is blame, right? We say, well, it's because of this, it's because of that, that's why I'm doing this. No, forget it. If it's not right, if it's selfish, then own up to it and say it's selfish. And I need to really think about this and pray about whether this is the right thing to do. Don't blame somebody else. Comparison. Well, you know, everybody else got more stuff than me, so I think it's okay if I have just this. Well, a lot of people are doing really, really bad stuff. I mean, their lies are really hurting people. My lies help people. <laughs> no, that doesn't matter. And so this blame in comparison. The last one is reduction of importance. And that's when we just say, that's no big deal. I mean, if, even if people found out, they wouldn't care. If my boss found out that I was stealing stuff from the office, he wouldn't care. He'd just say, go ahead and take it. Okay, well then, just tell him you're taking it then. See what he says. Um, and we say, well, God forgive me anyways. doesn't matter. It does matter. I mean, the forgiveness of God was the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. And we're just going to say, oh, well, I'll just do it because God's just going to forgive me. It doesn't really matter. That's kind of reduction of the importance of what we're doing. Or uh, the other thing that's actually really bad is, is is, is the dehumanizing of our victims. And that happens a lot where people say, well, particularly in corporations, where they don't think about how it affects people. They say, oh, they're just a bunch of drones and workers. It doesn't really matter if they don't have health insurance. You know, really, that's how bad it is. They say, well, we're gonna take away their retirement and everything like that, because they don't think of them as people anymore. They just think of them as drones. And I'm just making money and I don't care. We think of the immigrants. Oh, they're just immigrants, immigrants. We don't think of them as people. They're people. We don't dehumanize. uh, That's the way in which we can rationalize bad behavior or or bad thinking and saying, oh, well, they're just this, they're just that. And it starts to be a, a point where we're beginning to justify our actions. Like, oh, it doesn't, you know, who cares? And so the question we need to ask now as we think about moving forward is you know, what are some of the things that we're trying to justify right now? What are some of the things in my life right now where God's saying into, to my area saying, hey, you know, what you're doing right now is not right. How you're treating somebody right now is not right. The way that we're living our lives right now is not right. The, the things that you're doing with your friends right now, it's not right. And don't blame your friends. Don't say, oh well, I was going with them and I'm trying to be a witness to them and that's why I'm doing these things, or I didn't mean to, but they were doing it, and that's how this happened, or I need to do this because at work that's the way things are. No, what are the things that we are justifying right now where God is saying, Hey, this is a problem in your life. This is a problem in my life. And maybe even people are telling us, our wife is telling us, you know, we better be careful, or our parents are telling us, you better be careful. And we're just justifying it, saying, No, no, things are okay, and we give Give a reason or excuse but deep inside we know hey there's something God's saying this is not right this needs to change and we need to stop the, the justification and say God you know you're right forgive me let tomorrow be the day let today be the day that I change for the Lord and, and, and so, this is the thing. Just think about what are some of the areas in our lives right now that we're really trying to justify. And, 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 and stop giving, we want to stop giving excuses and respond to the conviction of God. And so it's in this parable, it's in this context that Jesus actually brings the parable of the Good Samaritan. And and see, we're just getting to the Good Samaritan right now. Jesus says there's a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And we know the story. He fell among the robbers. They beat him, left him half dead. Uh, We know that a Levite passes by him. uh, A a priest passes by him. And actually, they actually pass by on the other side. And then uh, finally, a Samaritan comes by. Remember, a Samaritan is a bad guy. Quote, a bad guy. And, um, and the Samaritan is the one who helps him. And we kind of know that story. Now the road to Jerusalem is a very uh, treacherous road. This is what it looks like. It's kind of like these caverns, these caves, and there's caves there where people, where robbers generally hide and kind of ambush you from behind or whatever. And so this guy, he gets, uh, he gets attacked. And, um, and we know the parable. The third person, uh, the Samaritan, is the one who had compassion. And so we look back at verse 29, and um, what's interesting is that Jesus kind of turns this question around, because the lawyer is asking, who is my neighbor? Okay, so the lawyer is asking, he's focusing on the man who's hurt. And the lawyer is saying, okay, what type of person is he? Is he my neighbor? Uh, Is he the type of person that I should help? And so he's trying to distinguish who I should help and who I shouldn't help. And he thinks that's the key to love. And Jesus, he turns the parable around because at the end he says, Well, which one of these three proved to be a neighbor? Meaning Jesus is actually saying, Not who is my neighbor. Jesus is saying, Are you a neighbor? Am I a neighbor? How are we acting when we see people around us who um, who are uh, who are troubled, who are are struggling? And Jesus says he picks a Samaritan not to say, "Hey, don't pick on the Samaritans anymore." He picks a Samaritan because he knows that a Samaritan in their in their worldview, a Samaritan knows very little about the scriptures. A Samaritan knows very little about religious law. But yet a Samaritan of all people knows how to live out this law. A Samaritan knows how to love people in the way God wants us to love them. And so he's saying if a Samaritan who doesn't know anything about the law knows like like one one hundredth of a percent of what you know about the law, since you're an expert in the law, if he knows what to do, if he can do the right thing, how much more serious is it for you now, as an expert in the law, to do the right thing? How much more is God going to expect we, who are Christians, to understand the most important element of godliness? And that is to, to really live out the truths of Scripture. To make it real in our lives. I mean, this comes close to home. You know, we talk about conviction, being uncomfortable. I mean, here at Living Hope, we know the Bible. We should know the Bible. I mean, that's one of our values, It's right. a characteristic of our church. From children to youth to adults, uh, we're inundated with biblical knowledge. There's a lot of churches where children's ministry, they just play games, youth to just play games, things like that. Here at our church, we thank God for the children's ministry. We thank God for the youth ministry, uh, for Pastor Kirk and Denise. Um, There is a very structured and intentional plan of bringing children to, you, to middle school, to high school, to college, to adults, to say that we are, we know our Bible, we know our theology, we even know our biblical history. And I get excited when I hear people coming out of class even now saying how much they enjoyed the class, how much they enjoyed Luis's class, and, and they're learning cool insights about stuff, and they say, wow, you know, I've been studying this passage for so long and I didn't see this, and they're like so excited. And I get excited when I see that, and I'm really happy when people are like, wow, the, the word of God is like, like really, um, not just saying, oh, you know, I know this. Wow, I'm really excited about what God is saying. But here's the thing. The more we know, the more is demanded. The more we are given, much more is expected. These are not the words from Spider-Man. <laughs> These are the words from Jesus. These are the words from Jesus. And the Good Samaritan, what Jesus is saying is that love is not an idea that we just agree upon. It is an act that we live out every single day. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. That we, as we love God, we must obey his commands. We must do the things. We must live out the things that we know of Jesus. I told this story probably a long time ago. When I was graduating from seminary, there was this speaker who came and shared with us as a graduating class. And he was talking about this class who actually had an exegetical paper due on Luke 10. And Exegetical papers, just so that you know, exegetical papers are the terror of theological students because basically it's like a 15 page, single spaced, uh, careful study of the original Greek grammar and syntax. They required like weeks of just careful research and uh, several late nights to get this paper done. and, 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 And for this class, it was due on Friday afternoon. And this is pre internet, so we actually had physical papers. Okay, believe it or not. There was a time when you actually typed them out, put them, print them out, or we didn't even print them out, we typed them out, stapled them, and we had to deliver them and they had to be in the professor's box by three o'clock in the afternoon. Otherwise, you know, for every day you every day you miss, it's one grade lower. So everybody's like, oh, I gotta get there. And we're like and not weird, but that class, everybody was like, you know, exhausted, tired, and they're just, you know, these sixty, wearied-eyed, disheveled students who had spent all night for weeks just getting this paper done, and they go into the professor's office, and one creative student, there's always one, he turned in his paper and he tried an experiment. He went and put ketchup on his shirt, you know, ripped his shirt a little bit, and he laid out on the, uh, on the lawn. It's right on the path to the professor's office, and he just laid there like still, didn't do anything, didn't moan, didn't, just lay there. And the speaker said the tragedy of it all was that 60 students walked past him and did not even go to check if he needed help. They just finished exegeting the story of the Good Samaritan, spending hundreds and hundreds of hours finding that the, the, the littlest detail of the Greek and everything And the professor told us, he said, you are going to come out of here and you're going to know how to correctly handle the precious word of God. And he said, you and your ministry are probably going to have thousands of opportunities week after week to preach and declare the beautiful truths of God's word. But it won't matter if you don't live out God's word day to day in simple, determined obedience. And if that is the case, then we have failed you. We have failed you as a seminary. That was the graduating that was the graduating speech when we graduated from seminary. And I always remember it not because I mean it was a funny illustration it was really you know something you remember but it's also powerful the importance of living out God's word and what that really means. A missionary was training some local believers and he came across a new believer who had this unusually unusual handle of of, of God's word he, he knew so much of God's word and he asked the man said how do you know God's word so well I mean you're a young believer and uh, you don't have much teaching but you know God's word so well and the man says well yeah here we don't have much opportunity to learn from seminary we don't get to sit under expert teaching but for me you know I have a bible and so every time I learn something from the bible from God's word I just go out and put it into practice and then he says, after that, I never forget it. I'm like, whoa. Because I think about that, and again, that's so convicting, because I think sometimes we have it backwards. Sometimes we think, you know, if I can only learn God's word well enough and, and, and really hide it in my hearts, so then, then I'll be able to act more biblically. But maybe, maybe the opposite is true. That if we practice God's word faithfully, the things that God teaches us, just simply from our devotions, that we practice it, put it into practice day by day, that we will find that that's when we truly will hide God's word in our hearts. Let's go ahead, let's just spend some time in prayer right now. As we think about these things again, come before the Lord. Well, what is God's